Hello, fellow runners. Welcome back to the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast. How do you effectively apply scientific research to your training? In today's interview, we're going to talk to Alex Hutchinson, who's one of the foremost experts on analyzing running research and applying or discrediting the results to actual training. Alex is the author of the book, Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights, which analyzes 111 common fitness and running myths and uses scientific research to confirm or deny their truth. In my opinion, it's one of the best books that I read in 2012, so I'm really excited to have Alex on here today to share his wisdom and to dig into depth into some of the research and fitness myths that he uncovered while writing his book. If you're interested in any of the links that we mentioned in this interview, you can access them at runnersconnect.net slash rc15. And as always, please do us a favor and leave us a rating on iTunes. And if you want to ask questions to our future guest, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. Thanks for, uh, for taking the time out of your day to, to join us today. Oh, hey, Jeff. Thanks. It's, uh, it's great to, to be here. I appreciate the, uh, the, the opportunity. Awesome. Um, so I did a brief introduction about you, but uh, let's let's let you tell the audience a little bit about you know your your background in running itself, and then also uh, in regards to your scientific and writing exploits. Well, uh, okay, to start with running, I think uh, like you and like a lot of people, I, I started out running in high school and uh, ran through high school and university, and for a few years after university, mainly as a, I started out as a middle distance runner. I was running fifteen hundred meters in the mile. Um, and that's what I was probably most successful at. And, and later I sort of moved up and ran 5,000 meters. So I, so I ran 342 for 1,500 and 1,352 for 5,000 meters. Uh, and as the distance has got longer, I, I, I uh, struggled a bit more. Um, so I've, I've never run a marathon yet. That's on my agenda for next year. But uh, I'm 37 now, and I still, I still train and race. Uh, you know, I train every day and, and enjoy racing. And I'm branching out now into trail races and I've tried some mountain races and having fun with that, but uh, mainly on the roads these days. Nice. That's um, definitely a good uh, running background. That's, I mean, you definitely were accomplished in, and, and, and for people that don't know, Alex is from Canada. Um, and so uh, you are from Canada, correct? I, I am from Canada. And okay. yeah, I did. I, I, I ran, I should also mention, I ran a lot of cross country. And so I was able to, to run for Canada at the world cross country championships a few times. Um, so, so, you know, whatever the surface or the distance, I, I do have some experience with it. <laughs> Awesome. And then, you know, after you, you know, uh, besides your running background, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, scientifically and, and kind of getting into the writing background of, of research and running. Yeah, I, I have a, a fairly unusual career path. I, I, at university, I studied physics. Um, that was at McGill University in Canada. And, and after that, I went to, uh, to Britain and did a PhD in physics at the University of Cambridge. And after that, I, I ran full time for a year after that. And then I did some postdoctoral research at the National Security Agency down in Washington uh, for a few years in physics. And then I, you know, I enjoyed the research, but it wasn't quite uh, the, the right fit for me uh, career-wise in terms of just, it wasn't my passion. And, and uh, when I was 28, I went back and did a master's degree in journalism at Columbia. And, uh, I, you know, I wasn't quite sure where that would lead or what kind of journalism I would end up doing because, you know, as we all know, the journalism world is in a bit of flux these days. Uh, it's not a, um, no one really knows how journalism is going to work. But I, I, things have turned out well because by combining my, my running interests, both my experience with running, but also just the fact that I'm really interested in running and have, I've always been a student of the sport with my, my, my scientific background, my, you know, even though my training is in physics, 
really, I think, uh, as a lot of people would attest, um, you know, science is, is, is not, you know, necessarily a specific set of equations or anything. It's, it's a way of, of looking at the world and, and of being comfortable with uh, reading literature and going to scientists and asking them questions about their research. And so I've kind of found a niche where I do most of my, I, most of my work is now focused on sort of the science of training and fitness and health. Uh, so that's, you know, at Runner's World and at a, at a newspaper in Canada and various other places outside magazine. Um, so I guess the, the one other thing I, sh I should mention is, you know, people think, uh, oh, you spent all that time doing physics, what a waste. But the, the real advantage for me is that uh, going to different places, you know, going to England and to, living in Washington, I had a chance actually to train with some really interesting coaches over those years. So when I was in England, I trained with a guy named Harry Wilson, who was the, the coach of Steve Avet, the world mile record holder. Mm -hmm. And in, uh, in Washington, I trained with Matt Centrowitz's group. And I should, I guess these days I have to spe specify that I'm talking about Matt Centrowitz senior, the <laughs> former uh, American record holder for 5K, but who's also the father of Matt Centrowitz Jr., the, the uh, world championship medalist. So um, over the years, I've, I've trained with a lot of different coaches, and they've been very in inspirational people in my lives. And, and uh, uh, as, much as, as much as I think science is really important, I also think uh, the skills that a good coach brings uh, go far beyond uh, just you know, reading studies and, uh, uh, in, in terms of figuring out how to train. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. And, and honestly, one of the reasons I, I love your writing so much and I'm, I'm such a fan is that, you know, you do a really good job of combining that scientific research aspect with the experiences that you've had both in your own career and as well as that you've learned from other coaches and runners. And I think that blend that you're able to bring to the table and say, okay, well, we, we saw the results of this study, but, you know, does that how does that really apply? And, and can this really apply to training? Because it's in such an isolated environment. Um, and you do a really great job of bringing that out and making that making that clear to the readers and as you know from the research so I mean I think it's it's awesome and it's funny you mentioned you know the physics PhD when I first heard that you had a PhD I just automatically assumed it was in exercise physiology and um, or something related to that and so when I saw physics I was like wow and, and actually kind of a follow-up question do you feel like there's anything related uh, that you've brought over from the physics world or physics studying other other than you know learning how to, to look at literature and scientific research critically well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, whenever I read those descriptions of, of, of pose running technique where that says you have to be falling forward because if you fall forward, it'll push you forward for your entire run, I can say, well, look, one thing I can remember from first year physics is, is there's some pretty basic conservation of momentum and energy laws that says you can't fall forward for a whole run unless you're running down Mount Everest. Um, and, and, you know, more, more seriously, um, Particularly looking at, at things like biomechanics studies, uh, you know, and under, having, having a certain comfort level with, with reading these studies about how forces are acting and, and impulse forces and reaction forces and stuff. There's a little bit of that, but, but to be honest, I, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't exaggerate the direct crossover of physics, you know, especially after undergraduate, you know, once I was doing uh, graduate research uh, or, or, uh, or even postgraduate research, I was focusing on a very, very narrow area. Um, I was working in quantum computing uh, and, and semiconductor physics. Uh, there's there's very little that I did on a day-to-day -day basis there that that applies uh, here. But but again, I, like I, like I was saying before, there, there's uh, there's a lot of overlap just in terms of how you how you process information, how you ask questions, and how you answer them. And like you like you said, how to not overstate the, the significance of results because we all, certainly I find it very interesting to look at studies from exercise physiology and training studies 
where they, you know, they have runners, runner A trains in one way and runner B trains in another way. And uh, these give us, give us clues and hints about what may be going on inside the body and, and, and some interesting ideas about how to train. Mm-hmm. But they don't write a training plan for you. And, and I think people, are, people sometimes think that because of my, my interest and my background, I, I, I would have a very, very science-based uh, approach to my training. Personally, I, I don't own a, a, you know, a Garmin or a GPS watch. I, I don't do a lot of heart, I have a heart rate monitor, but I rarely use it in training. You know, I, so I think this, this thing that you were alluding to before of, of sort of integrating the information to a training plan without letting, letting the, the, the tail wag the dog, I think is really important. And, and that's, so, so yeah, physics, to, to, to wind back to your original question, uh, I, I, I don't use a lot of my direct physics, but I think that the, the outlook is, that you take from science and is certainly helpful to me. Right. No, I mean, it's interesting that you brought up the point about, uh, you know, you're, yourself not actually owning a Garmin or and not really using a heart rate monitor and having such a scientific background. Um, is that something that has come to you over time? Did you ever try to do, did you ever try to train, especially when you were running competitively with a more scientific approach, but really looking at everything? And, or has it always been a little bit more uh, relaxed approach to training for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a conflict, an internal conflict. And to, to be honest, it's like, in, in some ways, I think I'm wary about letting myself get too wrapped up in, in, the, in the numbers and the data um, because, because of my inclination, because of my interest in this kind of stuff, and because running itself lends itself to a sort of obsessive, uh, you know, over-analytical approach. Absolutely. And because that can then spiral into, you know, overtraining or, or, you know, not, you know, altering your training in order to, to, to produce good data instead of to produce good training. Uh, so, so looking back, for instance, even back to when I was in high school, um, this is before there were GPS watches, uh, but we did have watches back then. Um, <laughs> I, I used to, you know, I read, in, I read Tim Noakes' Lore of Running when I was in high school, and one of the one of the points that it made at that point, they thought that a, a good indicator, a good advanced indicator of overtraining was heart rate response just after you get up in the morning. So, you know, when, when you wake up in the morning and you're lying in bed, your heart rate will vary depending on your, your previous training load and what else is going on. But it's hard to, to get any information from that. But then when you stand up for the first time of the day, your heart rate will spike. Uh, and, and what they found is the difference between your lying in bed heart rate and your just 15 seconds after you stand up, heart rate was a was a pretty good indicator of of you know if it if it if there's a big gap if your heart rate really spikes after you stand up that's a good indicator of that something's going on with your autonomic nervous system mm-hmm. that maybe indicates overtraining. So when I was in high school and, and through university for several years, for instance, I kept I took a heart rate every morning when I woke up and I took a heart rate 15 seconds after I stood up, uh, you know, pretty much every morning for for several years. Um, so I guess, which is an example to say that, yeah, I, you know, I, I am interested, always have been and interested in figuring out what data is useful and what data I can apply to my training. And I certainly enjoyed keeping training logs and running various analyses, you know, looking at not just my weekly mileage, but I would always keep the, the running three week or four week total. So I'd know not just how much mileage I'd done last week, but how much I had done on average over the last three or four weeks. But, and, and so 
Yeah, right now, because I'm, I'm more running for fun these days, I don't worry about any of that. If I was still more competitive, yeah, I would, I would still try to apply some of that data. But I think, I think you have to always be thinking about the balance between to what extent is this helping me and to what extent am I just trying to create pretty graphs? Am I, am I letting, letting my training be dictated by what I think will produce good data or a pretty training log or, mm-hmm. or something like that? So, yeah. It, it, and, and, and in all honesty, like, what would I advise someone, what data would I advise someone to, to keep track of? It depends on the person. So you know, some people really need to be held back. Some people need to be pushed forward. Some people need. Uh, some people thrive on on more data. Some people feel the pressure of data. So I don't think there's a universal answer. But I do think, I guess in general, that so far a lot of the data that people collect is is not really all that useful. Um, that that uh, that we know a little less than we th- than than we sometimes pretend we know about. Know where exactly your heart should, heart rate should be on a given run. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, you know I'm glad that you said that because I think uh, personally as a coach, one of the diff- most difficult issues that I deal with is runners wanting to to look at and provide too much data sometimes. And I see this a lot in most most often in like easy runs where, and especially with strides, where an athlete will record every split of their easy run and then uh, and then even record you know what their fastest time was for a 20 30 second stride after their run. And they want to compare that data to, you know, what they've done before. Or if they have a bad, uh, easy run mile, they just say like, oh, that was a bad run. I, I let my pace slip in my easy run. And I think, you know, for me, I'm just like, wow, you know, easy. Just take it easy and don't even turn on your watch. Just run easy. But you get so caught up in the data that it can be, uh, it can really distract from the training and, and, and actually what you're trying to accomplish overall. So I'm actually glad to hear you say that and kind of confirm that even though you have such an analytical background, um, that you still approach your training in, in that kind of way. Yeah, and I, and I would say, like I said, it's 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 a struggle sometimes. Like it, it's a fighting. So I, I totally agree. Like easy runs, you should not be worried. Like I had, you know, I had a typical easy run route that I ran for many years back in Toronto. That you know, sometimes I would run it in fifty-one minutes. Sometimes I would run it in sixty-one minutes. And the truth is, that really doesn't matter. Unless it's going, you know, if I'm running it in 61 minutes for two for you know two weeks at a time, then you know, okay, you know what, my cumulative fatigue is probably high. It's only over over the course of many days and weeks do do, do those sorts of trends matter. The day to day variation can be from from a million things, and and you really need to not worry about it. That being said, because I had run that route for so many years, I knew where every kilometer split was, <laughs> you know, and that, there's my Canadianness coming out. You know, we did kilometer splits. And even, you know, I would try not to, but it was like, it was like a tick. I couldn't help but check the kilometer splits. And, and it's something I really had to be conscious of saying, you know what, I just went through two kilometers, you know, 30 seconds slower than I did yesterday. Don't worry about it. Don't speed up in response because what should dictate the right pace for this easy run is, is what feels right to me. Not, you know, there's no objective reality that I need to be running at a certain pace um, on this day. So yeah, it's it's I, I I totally agree with you, but I also have some sympathy for the for mm-hmm. the for the runners who are like yeah, but I want to time it and I want to compare it and I want to look for meaning in this in these meaning in these meaningless statistical fluctuations. That, right. No, that's funny. I have the, I have a similar story with the loop in, in uh, high school, very similar, where I knew the exact mile splits and I knew the exact distance. And my issue was that anytime I was close to a PR for the course, it was like no longer an easy day. It was 
you know, let's let's go. If I hit the first mile fast, it was it was let's see if I can PR for the course today. So I, I struggled with it myself. <laughs> yeah, for for sure. I have a good friend who's just actually gotten into running in the last couple of years, and he you know was running his first marathon. And he was I was visiting him uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me about the loop he's running most days and how how incredible the feeling of progress has been as he's gotten in shape, and how you know he used to run it. In 45 minutes, he would really struggle to run this loop at 45 minutes, and then he was doing it in 42, and then 41, and then 39, and then 37, and then the last week he had gotten down to 35. And you know, it's great to hear. Like we all, this this is what's wonderful about running, right? Like it's so quantifiable that you can see your progress, and it just feels so great. But I kind of was trying to warn him, like you know, it doesn't go on forever. You you you're not going to be running 25 minutes for this loop next year, and 15 the year after that. So you have to start, you know, looking for feedback and, and, and validation in, in other ways than expecting to get faster and faster on your easy, on what is, what is not even supposed to be a workout. It's just supposed to be your average run. You, you can't view that as an opportunity to, to, to PR every week because, it, that, you know, that way madness lies. Right. Now, that's great advice and very great advice for anybody that's listening to this podcast who's a, a beginner runner is, you know, those, those easy wins are great at first, but you can't expect them to come all the time and you've got to be got to be ready for that moment when you know you're going to have to look for other outside motivators that aren't going to be prs on every course that you run so definitely good advice for the beginners listening on to this podcast um let's dive in a little bit to uh, you know your book uh which comes first uh cardio or weights which i think is a phenomenal book um, it came out in 2011 i believe uh but i read it in 2012 and it was hands down the best book that i read uh that year um, and in that, uh, in the book, for people that haven't read it yet or are interested in reading it, you cover a lot of the our fitness myths and either debunk them or confirm whether it's actually true or not. Um, and out of all those myths that you have, and, and I counted rough a little bit over uh, 100. I had 111, but there may that may or not be uh, a correct number. But of all the fitness myths that you looked at in the book, um, which was your favorite and most fat- satisfying to debunk, um, and why? Well, first of all, I'll say that uh, I came to the same camp, too. I think there are 111, um, and that's what I've been going with as the official number. But, <laughs> but <laughs> once you start counting, it's easy to, to start to wonder, like, did I miss one? But, uh, yeah, favorite ones. Um, obviously, there, there are many. I'll, 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 I'll give you two okay. um, that are specifically running-related. One is, is even pacing. Um, and this was maybe, I would say, this was one of the biggest surprises for me. Um, and, and it's also one that you have to be careful not to over, over uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll, the, most of us would agree sort of in, intuitively that if you want to run a fast 10K or, or half marathon or whatever, the best way to do it is as, at as even a pace as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this just goes without saying, I would never have even questioned this. Uh, and, and the idea being that, you know, you, you want to distribute your effort evenly um, in, in order to, to, to be as, as efficient as possible. What the data shows, and it's really unambiguous at this point, is that if you look at, say, the, if you look at every 5,000 meter and 10,000 meter world record ever set uh, in, in the modern era of, uh, of, of track and field, so for the last... 80 or 90 years, mm-hmm. and you look at the splits, the kilometer splits, the first kilometer and the last kilometer are faster than every other kilometer in the race 
and, and that's true for every, this analysis was done by some researchers in Cape Town, they, they collected the splits, uh, and it, um, it was true, what they found, the only exception to that rule in the modern era was uh, when Paul Turgat set the 10,000 meter world record, and that, and that record, his ninth kilometer was slightly, like a fraction of a second faster than his tenth kilometer, but other than that, basically, first kilometer and last kilometer were fastest. Now, to me, my assumption would have been this is a classic example of, of inexperienced pacing. Like, that, what, what do people who are pacing themselves poorly do? They, they sprint out at the start. Mm -hmm. Then they realize, oh, man, this is too fast. They slow down. And then at the end, they're like, oh, wait, I have tons of energy left, and they sprint. <laughs> but this is what the best runners in the world are doing. Um, and, and it gets at a couple of things. The, the, the fast first kilometer has to do with, with the way energy systems work. You have a little bit of free energy a little bit of uh, energy that you can use up without particular cost in the first, you know, in the first couple of minutes of a race. Um, you have to be really careful. Like I, like I would say, this is uh, this is an easy bit of trivia to, to misuse and think you should sprint at the start of a, a 5K or 10K, let alone a marathon. And you shouldn't. But but there, if you're really going for a PB, you can afford to be a little bit aggressive in the first few minutes. And then, then what's key, what the world record holders do is that they settle into the fastest possible pace they can maintain um, for, for the rest of the race. But what they find is that you know, even if they're, they're really optimizing their speed, when they get to the, the last couple minutes of the race, they're able to increase their speed. And this is a really actually a deep insight um, because it, what it tells us really, uh, it's, it's part of, it's one piece of evidence in this that suggests that really our minds are more important than our bodies in, in uh, uh, controlling our, our physical limits, the limits of endurance. Mm -hmm. When you when you are feeling like you can't go any farther, it, it really feels usually like it's your legs or your lungs or your heart that are failing you. But what what this evidence for fast finishes tells us is that it's it's really your brain that is giving you the feeling that you can't go any faster. And once you get within sight of the finish line, your your brain realizes, oh, we're not going to die today after all. So we can release a little bit more of that energy. And really, I think a lot of what training is about for, 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 for runners, sure, we're making our bodies uh, you know, stronger and our hearts stronger, but we're also teaching our brains to push a little harder and, and push a little closer to, to our limits. Uh, and you know, this is, this is every, every interval workout we do, every hard workout is, is a process of convincing our brains to release a little bit more of that reserve that it's keeping. So uh, it's a long-winded way of, 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 of saying that I found the myth of even pacing was, was really a su surprise to me that it wasn't true. And I would say the, the, the message that you get from it isn't that you shouldn't tr we should still aspire to even pacing. That's, that's still probably the most efficient way to try to run. But you should expect that when you get close to the finish line, you, 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 will, you will discover that you have a little bit of extra gas in the tank mm -hmm. for the most part. No, that's that's a great point, and and again, it goes back to your point where you're not just you're not just looking at the data and saying, oh, well, this is no longer the the best way to do it. Um, you're you're trying to look into the deeper insights of you know why is it coming out this way? Why is the first and last split you know always the fastest, and, and what does that mean? Um, and I think that's that's great for everybody that's listening to this podcast in terms of uh, physically, obviously, how they should run the race, but how they should be looking at their training as well, and not just saying. You know, realizing that it's it's also there's also a mental component to the training that they need to teach themselves how to to push past that fatigue limit and push past when they when their body's like no we're, we we can't go any faster and 
to teach to teach yourself that no actually we probably can if we if we continue to push and, and working on, on making that happen within the training so they can do it on race day yeah and i know i know this is a topic you've you've addressed in the past i think i remember you you wrote a blog entry not too long ago about mm-hmm. with ideas for things like uh, hammer intervals and things like that in, yeah. in, in workouts I, you know and I, I really strongly believe that um you know w- workouts aren't just about the the physical they, they are about teaching yourself and giving yourself confidence uh that when it hurts when it when when you feel like you, your finger's in the flame and you have to pull it away you can actually hold your finger there in the flame for a little bit longer uh you know without dying it, it's uncomfortable but it, you know runners are always willing to deal with a bit of a discomfort if there's a, a pr uh available right especially especially as you said like when you can see the finish line and i think that's evident uh in races where and i remember doing this when i was running road races there would be some road races where you would turn the corner and and there was the finish line within you know a couple hundred meters or less than that sometimes um and then there were other races where you could see the finish sometimes from a mile away and it was completely different in terms of how well you were able to kick and what we were able to finish and it, it definitely relates to that to that point where you're like well i can see the finish i know it's there so i can definitely push a lot harder i, I know i know i'm almost done <laughs> Yeah, although boy, some of those road races can be deceptive. You see the finish, and you think it's right there, but a long flat road, you can see a long way. And, and, yeah, and it, and it can, never comes. It can, <laughs> yeah, it, it can be a painful, painful way to finish. Right. But uh, I, I promised you two minutes, so I'll say the yep. other one that was very satisfying for me. Um, and again, it's one where there's more complexity. It's not just a question of right and wrong, and, and, and it's, it's so simple. But um, the, the research on, and, and this I think has been. Uh, I guess what I'm going to say is, is the research on stretching has, has, has changed people's opinions a lot in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of complexity and, and a lot of uncertainty still about what the, the right role of stretching is. But as, as uh, you know, personally as a guy who was extremely inflexible and just really didn't enjoy stretching, and yet I spent, you know, more than a decade of my life really religiously stretching a couple of times a day uh, and more, you know, before and after every hard workout and after every run. And, um the idea that static stretching, the traditional sort of stand, sit there and try and touch your toes for and hold it for 30 seconds, um, there's now a lot of research that says that, first of all, it's not necessarily clear that it's, that this has any effect on your injury risk uh, if you're doing it before. Like, for, I'm talking about for runners here. If you're mm-hmm. a ballerina, then that's a different question. But uh, static stretching before a run doesn't necessarily make you less likely to get injured. And it may actually even make you less efficient. There's a few studies that suggest that static stretching uh, can, can uh, reduce your, your running economy. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you should never stretch or that, that flexibility isn't important. And I, 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 these days, I, before hard workouts, I do a dynamics flexibility routine. But boy, in terms of I, <laughs> you know, the quality of my life, I would say not having to sit there and do the classic toe-touching stretch bef- before and after every run, like uh, that that's that's been the, the greatest joy i i gotta be honest if, if i if i thought that i had to you know do a, a hard static stretching routine uh before and after every run i'd probably be playing tennis these days not, uh, not running <laughs> you know it's funny that, that you mentioned that and i i mean i've definitely seen the research that supports that um but again going back to the uh, sometimes the the reality versus the research um and i think i may have mentioned this to you once or before i can't remember but um you know, I've always had the, the biggest issue with this because I'm like, well, I know when I am really tight and really sore before a run, if I can just stretch, and even if it's a static stretch, I, I feel so much better. And, and there have been days after a hard workout where 
you know, I can't really do much but walk for maybe five minutes and then and then once I stretch, then I'm like ready to go. Um, and so it's hard for me to, to conceptualize that that not stretching might actually uh, be better. Obviously, dynamic stretching was, is probably the better option. But for me, I'm just like, it feels so good. It has to work. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, so there's, there's two things we were talking about, right? Like there's, there's injury and there's performance. Now, the, the performance studies, they suggest maybe you, you might, if you do, you might compromise your running economy by a couple of percent, up to maybe 5% at most mm-hmm. um, for, you know, 30 to 60 minutes after stretching. This is totally irrelevant in basically all contexts except uh, racing. Um, you know, like, so it's like I found this, this is a classic example of research that I found interesting in theory, but it's like if, if someone is asking me, should I stretch before a, before a run, well, that, that's not really a factor. Like, who cares if, you're, if, if you feel not good and stretching makes you feel good, then who cares if you're slightly less efficient during a, a typical run or a workout. So, right. you know, this is a classic example of, of, of something that's not, not worth worrying about. Now, it, it, you know, and, and again, like I said, the, the, the research is complex. There was one study by, uh, with a couple of thousand people that was run by USATF a few years ago. Not a great study, but it, but it, but it was an interesting study, a thought-provoking study nonetheless, where they had a big group of people, some of whom were habitual stretchers and some of whom were not habitual stretchers, and they they randomized half of them to 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 then stretch. So some of the stretchers kept stretching, and some of the non-stretchers started stretching, mm-hmm. and some of the, and then they randomized the other half to not stretch. So some of the basically, uh, the, you know, some of the non-stretchers kept not stretching. Anyway, I'm, I'm sort of making this sound more complicated than it is, but no, I'm the, following. The, the upshot was that the people who kept doing what they were used to doing did best. Whether they were stretching or not stretching, if they were if they were randomized to keep doing whatever they'd been doing before, they did best. And the people who were randomized to, to change their routine, so the the non-stretchers who started stretching and the stretchers who start who stopped stretching, were both more likely to get injured. So there's something to be said for for like you said, listening to your body, and and if it feels good to you, uh, you know, then then it, it's probably good. What I would what I would say is that feeling good is a good thing, but but. But then we, we should look at the data to say, okay, but is this, for instance, the best way to avoid injury during a warm-up? And I would say, or during a run, I would say, to me, the, the strongest evidence is that the most important thing to, to accomplish during a warm-up is to raise your, your, your body temperature to, uh, to um, you know, through a gentle jog, and then to take your muscles through their the range of motion where you're actually going to use them because if you, you know when you're when, when you get a running injury when you pull a hamstring for runners it, it doesn't happen when you're trying to, to to do the splits or whatever it happens mm-hmm. in the course of a regular running stride so stretching if, if, it, if it feels good to you then you know go for it but don't let it replace the the, the other parts of a warm-up that are important like you know a gentle progressive start and then some some things like some some drills, some some dynamic stretches that move your your legs through the range of motion that you're going to use, and during the run and a little bit beyond, and then putting it together maybe with some strides and stuff so that you're ready to go. So that that's the way I would interpret that science. It's, it's, it's not that anyone should stop stretching or that stretching has no benefits, but that for some of the benefits that we have attributed to stretching in the past, like preventing injuries. 
we need to look maybe look elsewhere because it's other factors that maybe are more important. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, along the same line, and, and, and you kind of maybe answered this a little bit in your first question, but uh, or your first answer about the fitness myths that you enjoyed the most, but was there anything that you went into that you just thought you were was totally going to be like a, oh yeah, we're definitely going to debunk this this myth about fitness or running, and you were totally wrong, or your assumptions were totally wrong? Well, one, one of the uh, one of the surprises for me actually was the the, the real classic pasta dinner, um, because I, I'd had the impression that this was maybe something that was had become a bit of a uh, a tradition that, that maybe wasn't really important for for most people that. You know, you don't need to eat spaghetti the night before a race, and for, for most of us, we get enough carbohydrate because I think the, the it, when when carbo loading was first introduced, maybe thirty or forty years ago, it was a big sort of long, troublesome process where you had to deplete yourself of carbohydrates for a few days, which was pretty hard on the body, and then you added them, uh, ate nothing but carbohydrates for a few days, and that had kind of fallen out of fashion. So I thought the path to dinner was just a kind of over from that. And, and, you know, when I say pasta dinner, obviously it doesn't mean to be pasta. But what I was surprised to find is that there's quite a bit of research that um, it, it is quite difficult to get enough carbohydrate in the last day or two before a long race in order to really max out your, your carbohydrate stores. And the vast majority of people, if you, if, you do, if, if you look at in the real world, the vast majority of people start a marathon without full carbohydrate stores. That if you really want to be topped up you have to make a big effort, not just with a single meal, but throughout the day and probably the two days before the marathon to be getting in lots of carbohydrates, and whether that's by sipping sports drinks or taking lots of, of small meals and things like that. Um, so that was, that was one where I thought I was going to end up writing, don't worry about this, the, you know, the past of dinner. But in, in fact, the, the message turned out to be, hey, if, you, if you're going to run a marathon, or you know, a long race that's lot better, last, lasting longer than 90 minutes, you should really, uh, you know, be aware of the need to get a lot of carbohydrates uh, the day or two before, and also actually during the race. Most people, the evidence seems to suggest that most people don't get as much carbohydrate during the race as they could process, and that's that's a thing. That's often a thing where they're like, "Well, my stomach doesn't feel good when I take too much carbohydrate," and the answer to that is. Yeah, so you need to practice taking carbohydrate during your long runs. You, you need to train your stomach to handle more carb carbohydrate because there will be a benefit if you can teach yourself to to, uh, to to get down more carbohydrate. Right. No, that's great. I mean, and I'm glad that you shared that particular one because um, I think it's really important. And then I, and I've seen you know some of the same same research, and I think it was I, I think it's awesome that it's highlighted in your book. And for those who haven't um, read your book yet, I think. That's, this is a great example of some of those that information that you can pick up and, and really kind of change your outlook on your own training and your race preparation. So I think I'm glad you gave that example because I think it's um, I think it's a great point for everybody that's listening to this podcast about how to fuel themselves and, and kind of looking at some of the research for that. So that's that's great. Um, so one of the things that and I and I found this funny is in probably the first couple pages or chapters of, of the book. Um, you know, the, the, again, the title is, you know, uh, which comes first, cardio or weights? And there actually is, in, from what I was reading in the first couple pages anyway, there's a there's, there's a, a micro level of looking at that and there's a macro le level of looking at that. And, and what I mean by that is uh, in terms of the research that you looked at, 
Um, I've always thought that, well, we would, if you're a runner and you want to add strength training, you always add it after you're running because you don't want to be too tired to run. You don't want to deplete your energy stores and then not be able to finish your easy run or your hard workout. Um, and I thought that was pretty much the only reason. But it, it, from what I can read in your, your book, there's definitely actually a, an actual physio physiological reason for that. Um, and it has to do with cellular switching. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, that and how that process works and, and how... Um, you know, how we can flip that switch for runners that are want to make sure that we're keeping the aerobic system in check. And for anybody that's listening to this podcast who might be really interested in, in lifting weights, how we can make sure that that switch switches if we're really trying to gain muscle. Yeah, th this is an interesting example of uh, um, one of the ways that, uh, that exercise science is in the last few years has started to, to harness new techniques to actually go beyond just sort of but let's have people train in this way for six weeks and then we'll take out a tape measure and measure their biceps and see whether it worked. They're, they're now be able to, to do things like take, take uh, little needle, needle biopsies, uh, you know, after a single workout. So, so instead of just seeing how does this work after six weeks, we can have, have people do a workout, take a little biopsy and look at the changes in the muscle, look at what proteins are being produced, uh, to, to learn how the body is responding to very specific workouts or combinations of workouts uh, in, in, you know, in all, essentially in real time. And so it, it turns out that, you know, when, whenever you do a workout, whatever kind of workout you do, um, uh, the, your body responds. There's a whole cascade of, of signaling events that, that tell your body, for instance, hey, we're, we're, we're experiencing very high demand for aerobic energy right now. You know what? Uh, let's let's remodel and rebuild in order to have more mitochondria in our cells, so that we can produce next. So that next time this happens, we're we're ready to supply this aerobic energy more efficiently. Now, uh, what what it turns out, and what what was sort of a, a surprise a couple of years ago, was that the so there's different different signaling pathways to say make our muscle fibers bigger or make our aerobic energy make our cells produce more aerobic energy. It turns out that the, the signal, the, main, the two main signaling path, pathways, which is for increased strength or increased endurance, um, they, they run through some of the same bottlenecks. Uh, the, there's an enzyme called AMP kinase that uh, is crucial to, to sending the signal for more strength or for more endurance, and it can't do both at the same time. So if, if you're, for instance, Doing a, a long run, if you're if you're out there, uh, giving a stimulus to your body to, to develop more endurance, you're you're harnessing the, all those AMP kinase enzymes to to signal for more endurance. So then, if you immediately stop and and uh, do you know do some push-ups or whatever, um, the signal to to build more strength is not getting through as as effectively because the the signaling pathways are jammed up. And they're they're focused on endurance, and they can't switch instantly. It takes it, I, they don't know exactly what the, the dynamics are, but they know that it takes a little bit of time. And so that if you if you do a workout that's half strength and half endurance, if you start with the endurance, you'll be a little more optimized to make endurance gains. And if you start with the strength, you'll be a little more optimized to make the strength gains. Now, again, this is something that shouldn't be sort of over uh, the significance shouldn't be overstated. You know, it's it's something that over the course of weeks and months and years, if you always do 
uh, your, you know, your strength training bef right before your endurance training, you'll probably see a difference that you, you'll, be, you'll be a little more effective in building strength and a little less effective in building endurance. But there's also a lot of other factors. And, you know, the biggest one is the, is the one you said, which is just fatigue, you know, and, and whatever you do when you're fresh, you're, you're able to push that workout a little more. You're not just physically fresh, but you're mentally fresh. You're able to, to, to push your limits a little more than when you're already tired, you're more likely to give up a little quicker. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is just, you know, logistics and convenience and practicality and what you enjoy also end up in, in the real world, end up playing a big, a big factor. So if you, you know, if you just don't enjoy, if, if you, or, or, or for instance, if you find that you, you enjoy going for your run, and, but by the time you finish your run, you're just not in the mood to do anything else. Whereas if you are willing, if, so you don't, you're not going to do strength training, whereas you don't mind doing a few sets of push-ups and, and dips or something right before you go for a run, then even if that's, you know, quote-unquote suboptimal for, for, uh, for, for building strength, or for building endurance, rather, uh, it's more important to get the workout done than to worry about these marginal effects. But, like, uh, as, as, as you can, uh, you know, as, as, as these results suggest, if you're a, a runner or a marathon runner, the, 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 the better option is to do your, your running first and your strength after. And if you're, uh, if you are, you know, if you're a runner, but you're also thinking, you know what, I, I, I would like to, to get stronger. I recognize that I, whether for health reasons or beach reasons or whatever, you want to uh, get stronger and bigger, then it's, it can be a good idea just to either move your strength training to a different time of day so that you're not doing it right after your run or occasionally do it first and then go out for, you know, schedule it so that you're doing your strength workout and then doing an easy run afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I guess another principle that I think is a, is a good general principle is variety, uh, mixing up the stimulus. Mm -hmm. So even if your, your general habit is, you know, do, do your run and then a couple times a week do some strength training afterwards, um, it's not a, not a bad idea to occasionally just totally mix it up. Do, do, go against what the, what, what, even though my book is well-meaning, go against its advice and, and, and do the opposite just to, just to force your body to, to react to new things. If you do the same thing over and over again, there's just, no matter how good the workout routine is, there, there's this law, sort of law of diminishing returns that, that your body will respond more strongly to, to, to change and to, to new stimulus. Mm -hmm. No, I'm, that's fantastic. And, and thank you for really going into depth and, and explaining that in a really uh, well thought out manner. Um, I think it's great that, and I think you summed it up in the last part where it's one of those situations where if you're just deciding like, hey, I can do both strength training and running, I just needed to figure out which one I want to do first for specific gains, then it makes sense to do the one that you're looking to optimize first. But if you're, but you, like you mentioned, if as long as you're not uh, putting it off or not being able, not doing it, um, then it doesn't, you know, if that's the case, then just go ahead and do whatever. Because I was actually going to follow up with a question of, like, well, how long does the switching take? And, and you kind of mentioned that actually the research doesn't really say, you know, how long the switch is. Because what I was thinking was, like, what if you do a 10-minute jog to warm up to lift, you know, um, or to, to go do strength training? Is that going to is that gonna hit the switch and then, you know, de -op or allow you to make you have suboptimal gains? But it doesn't sound like that's going to be something that you should even really worry about at all. Yeah, I don't. I mean, you know, the, the first answer is, as I said, we nobody really knows for sure. But the the practical answer, and my gut feeling, is that a ten minute jog is not going to make any difference. Um, you know, it's 
because when you think about it, like how much of if if you're you know a regularly training runner, so that you know if, if you're a, if you're totally sedentary, then the ten minute jog might make a difference. But if if you're used to running, then ten minutes isn't really gonna uh, cause any great perturbation to your your body's internal system. So it's not gonna mobilize. I mean, you're not gonna get any adaptations from from a ten minute jog. So uh, or at least not any significant ones. Mm-hmm. So so it's not going to clog up those signaling pathways. That, that would be my, my instinct. And I, I would certainly say that uh, warming up is always a good idea no, ma- no matter what. Mm-hmm. No, great. And, um, you know, just as a, as a final question, um, and I like to ask this to, to people that are, have been running and, and those types of things, but if you could go back and, and change one thing about your training or your approach to training, you know, when you were running competitively, um, what would it be, you know, if, if you could go back 10 years and tell yourself, you know, one thing about training and, and you would actually listen to it, um, which, which I know I probably wouldn't have when I was, when I was young, but, um, but uh, what would that be? You know, this, the, this is a question that in all honesty, I, I still think about so, so often and I, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, like, because I can convince myself of different things. So <laughs> I'm going to give you like a 45-minute answer here if I'm not careful. But um, for the first half of my running career, I was a very low-mileage uh, runner. And, and that often means people who are low-mileage often mean that they're hammering their workouts. But I actually was a low-mileage, relatively easy workout runner. Like I was a classic undertrained kind of runner. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, as, and I raced great. I, I was I, I I would race far above the level that I was training at, um, and but it, you know it's, 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 so for context I was running about forty miles a week tops when I was running three forty two for fifteen hundred meters, and I always I always knew I needed to increase my mileage and looking back you know I I kind of wish I had I had managed to increase my mileage earlier and more safely to so that I could be running 80, 90 miles a week, uh, even for middle distance, without it being a big issue. But I actually, even in the process of trying to raise my miles a little bit, just I got up to 60 miles a week, uh, I got a knee injury that actually I didn't run at all between about 22 and 24 years of age. And so in the second half of my career, I ran a lot, when I was training with Matt Centrowitz's group, I ran quite a bit more mileage, sort of 75 miles a week probably on average. And I did, and I worked out so much harder. I, I was, I was so much more fit. But my races then were not above my workout level. I would, I would, I would, I, I would never surprise myself in a race. I, in fact, all of my races were sort of negative surprises. So it's, it, there's those two extre- extremes in my training career where I was undertrained and a great racer, but wishing I was more heavily trained because there's only so much you can do, mm-hmm. you know not putting in the miles and where I was maybe not overtrained but heavily trained and maybe pushing a little too hard in workouts and super fit but never able to really raise the game so somehow I don't know what the, the real magic answer is uh, but I would I would have liked to be able to find a balance to, to take a longer term approach take a long-term approach to slowly building up my mileage but also have a little more confidence to 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 not race my workouts and to um, you know, I think that's one thing I did really well when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I was I was a real disciple of Tim Noakes's work. He was and he was always preaching that you know do it do as much as you can on as little as possible before increasing and don't don't raise your workouts. And in my later career, 
when I was training with a really, really top-notch group of runners where I really had to struggle to to, to stay with them and to, to be a, a part of that group. I think I was, even though I was aware of the risks, you know, everyone understands that you're not supposed to race workouts. And I would convince myself that I wasn't racing the workouts, but I think I was always leaving a little bit too much out there on the track. Mm-hmm. So that's not a single answer, but I guess, yeah, the, 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 the two-part answer is from the first part of my career, take a long-term approach and just gradually build up the mileage in a slow way without pressuring yourself, without without trying to do it too quickly. And then also just remember that training is training and racing is racing. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, as, as much as I, you know, I look back at my training log from the, the Centrowitz years and I, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I did that workout. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'd get, pro- like we were talking before about, uh, you know, not getting caught up in the numbers and, and letting the numbers drive your training. I, you know, I, I loved writing down those workouts and saying, look at this incredible workout I did. You know, what a hero I am. But boy, you know, I trade all those workouts for a few better race results. And that's, mm-hmm. that's no i'm glad that you shared that answer and and i i no problem with it being two different responses and two different i guess errors of your running because i think it highlights probably the two issues that most runners have the the most trouble with and you know i think my goal with this podcast sometimes is to hammer certain things into people you know they'll, they'll listen to the podcast and they'll hear something from you know one one athlete and and it'll kind of trigger a little bit like oh yeah maybe i should slow down my easy days but yeah, no big deal. It doesn't actually take. And then maybe three episodes later, we'll bring on another guest who talks about how they made a big breakthrough with slowing down the easy runs. And over time, hopefully it'll kind of click, you know, kind of kind of like that. And then I think you highlighted two of the, the biggest issues I think most runners have. Um, and so I appreciate it because I think that's really two camps that people come from. Um, I'm curious as, as a follow-up, um, looking at your results, which phase, uh, I guess maybe your earlier career and then your, your older career, which phase did you feel like you had better results uh, overall? And actually, not even feel, but which phase did you actually have better results? Yeah. It, it, so if you use like IAAF points to compare, mm-hmm. um, my best ever result was my 1500, which was run when I was 20 or 21, uh, 342. Mm-hmm. And then in my second phase, I ran eight flat for 3000 and, and 1352. And those are, those are a little bit weaker. Um, I don't think, like, this is what's so frustrating is that I feel like I was, you know, so much such like a way 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 better runner in the second phase of my career which is sort of from 24 to 28 or so mm-hmm. uh, but the so but the you know the results don't lie as as, as far as um if, if you're if you're just doing strict IAAF points to compare the shorter distance to the longer distance I was a better runner when I was a uh young and undertrained and and but but hungry and you know it's not that I wasn't serious about running I was very very serious about running I took my recovery seriously. I took my sleep and my nutrition seriously. I took everything seriously. I just wasn't doing a lot of miles, and I wasn't racing my workouts. I was I was working out with a group of runners who were, you know, over 1,500, 10 to 15 seconds slower than me. Mm-hmm. We did all our workouts together. They were always, all, <laughs> no, with no offense to them, they were always overreaching in the workouts, and I was always feeling relaxed, feeling, you know, running hard, but knowing that I could do another interval at that pace if I had to. Mm-hmm. And I would get to races and just be so, so uh, you know, so ready to, to, to explode with all the energy that I've been building up. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and as a follow-up question, as, as my own personal thing, and I didn't see this uh, anywhere in the bio when I was looking up for you, did you, have you ever officially broken four for the mile? <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you're digging in the, the, the sore point of my well when you when you kept saying 342 i'm like oh i wonder if you ever really went you know tried to go for the for the sub four <laughs> you know that 
in Canada, we, unlike in the States and Canada indoors, we don't run the mile. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I only competed at, I, I ran two miles ever in my life on the wow. track. And one, of, one of them was an indoor track, an indoor race when I was an undergrad, I ran 410. And, uh, Several years later, in my first year back after a couple of years of injury, I ran a 406 mile, but I never got into a good mile. And, it, you know, it would have been very close, obviously. I would have had to be three, three, my, my best time is 342.43, um, which, depending on the conversion, is either 359 or 4 flat. And as a distance-oriented guy, I would like to think that, you know, I would have been better at the longer distance and made it. But but you never know. And, and, and honestly, it's, it's, it's one of the, you know, to all you young milers out there, uh, make the effort to find mile races and go for it because yeah it would have been very very meaningful for me um it's something i i uh i would have loved to do but uh but i never did right well i hope i didn't open up the wound there but <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm gonna go cry into my coffee now for for the rest of the day yeah but, uh, no, to have it's good to have goals and dreams and you, you can't make all of them but but i certainly had fun going for it Right, right. Yeah, I kind of forgot about the fact that you probably wouldn't have run as many miles as somebody who lived in the U.S. would, even though there's still not that many miles um, as, when you're professional. But uh, but interesting. I, you know, I'll give you the conversion. So. <laughs> uh, <thank you. laughs> Believe me, I, I can make a 45-minute case for, for why that on that particular day I would have broken four minutes a day. <laughs> nice. Um, so, Alex, you know, if people want to follow your writing and, and uh, everything that you produce, what's how can they get a hold of you and, and where, where can they find it? Probably the best, uh, the, the you know, the, the most regular source of uh, nuggets of wisdom is my, my blog on the on the Runner's World site. It's called Sweat Science. The, the URL is runnersworld.com slash sweat dash science. But anyway, okay. you can find it if you go there. That, I, I blog there about three times a week, and it's mostly on new studies. Just quick thoughts on, you know, here's a new study on overtraining or something and, and what we can learn from it. Um, th th that has a link also to my website where, where I, I, and I also am on Twitter uh, which the, my handle is Sweat Science, and that that on Twitter I'll, I I put a heads up about any new posts mm -hmm. uh, okay. or any that I've written in other places. So that those are probably the two best ways to and, and Twitter's a good way to reach me. You can also find my email on on uh, on my website, but uh, but Twitter's a good way to get in touch. Okay, yeah. So what we'll do we'll throw up those links at the bottom of this post. So for for anybody that wants to check out uh, if they can't remember after reading this, just visit runnersconnect.net/rc15. And um, we'll have all those links, links for Twitter and uh, Alex's website and his uh, blog on Runner's World. Um, if you don't follow him, I, I highly suggest that you add him to whatever uh, way that you consume uh, running information because uh, his, his posts are consistently some of the best uh, that I read every week. Um, they're insightful. And again, he balances kind of looking at the research with the practical applications of training. Um, so I definitely suggest checking it out. And Alex, I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time here with us today. And um, for anybody that's listening, definitely, if you haven't read it yet, go out and buy uh, or check out Alex's book. Um, uh, it's, uh, I'm blanking on the name all of a sudden. <laughs> I, which no, comes which, first? Thank cardio you, sorry. <laughs> I knew it was cardio weights, but I couldn't remember which, which comes first. Um, yes, which comes first, cardio weights. Check it out. It's, uh, for me, it was the best book that I read in 2012, and uh, I'm pretty sure it'll be up there for you as well. So, Alex, thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. It's really been a pleasure to chat. Awesome.